Hello, everybody, and welcome back to So Doc, It's Cancer, a podcast to understand cancer, how it happens, how it's treated, how we arrive at a diagnosis and at a prognosis, cancer's impact upon a person's quality of life, and how to move forward in your life after a cancer diagnosis. The show airs monthly, and we welcome your engagement and feedback. Today, everybody, we're going to talk about lymphoma. Hello, everybody. Today, we are talking about lymphoma, a very interesting cancer subtype to medical students and folks interested in medical science in terms of biology, behavior, resulting symptoms, and treatments. Uh, from a patient's point of view, it's a weird cancer to lymph nodes. You know, although surgeons often make the diagnosis, surgery doesn't cure people. It tends to affect both young and old. It can be aggressive. It can be very indolent and non-life-threatening. Uh, it can be entirely silent, or it can change someone's life overnight. It is a cancer that originates in the bone marrow generally or in lymph nodes and is associated with immunity. Uh, the cell of origin of the lymphoma is a lymphocyte, which is central to immunity. So, Pete, uh, I'm going to stop you there for a second, and we're going to ask Mike about immunity. Um, what do you think you know about immunity, and what should we explain? Um, well, as I'm not a doctor, what, what I know about immunity is pretty limited. But my understanding is the defense system of your body. So wait, basically what I'm hearing Peter say is my defense system is under attack by a cancer. Exactly. Yeah. Now, I'm not 100% because my high school biology was a long time ago. The lymph glands and the lymph nodes, where are they? What, what, what am I looking for? What, what is that lymphatic system? That's, that's a good question. You know, Pete, how I describe it to people is that we're all about, you know, two-thirds water. And I describe these things as water filtration plants that are positioned throughout your body. What do you call, what do you, when you're talking with patients, how do you describe lymph nodes? I discuss lymph nodes as regional immune systems. Uh, example would be if you got an infection in your finger, often the lymph nodes in your armpits become inflamed just to fight the local infection feeding the, the finger rather than the whole body. Likewise, if you get a sore throat, you get a strep infection, the lymph nodes activate in your neck, which are localized, rather than activating the whole immune system. So how many lymph nodes are there in my system? Very good question. A lot. <laughs> it's like uh, Monty Python. How much do you hate the Romans? Yeah. No. There are, I uh, okay, so can't imagine, is... hundreds and hundreds. And they're about the size of an M&M. They're usually under a centimeter. Once they get over a centimeter in size, we start to wonder if these lymph nodes are okay. So, like, I know my doctor, when I go for my routine, my GM, GP? GP. Whatever. GP. Uh, the general manager of my body, yeah. he checks the, like, like around my neck, you know, he'll do a quick, like palpitate my neck or something. Yeah. So th that's all I ever knew. So you're telling me that there's hundreds more and they're, and they're like little way stations that divide the body up so that if there's an infection somewhere, that's the first line of defense sort of. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. 
the lymph nodes are actually fairly limited on a physician exam so that when they when a doctor wants to check out your lymph nodes they can check your neck your above your collarbones your armpit your um, groin area but that's about it and that's probably only represents about a tenth of the lymph nodes and we call them lymph node stations or areas most of them are involved are deep in the chest or in the abdominal cavity and serve uh, as an immune system for your internal organs, basically. Yeah, they're around every organ that you've got. So let's say we're talking about your stomach. There's lymph nodes all around the whole circumference of the stomach. If it's your large intestine, same kind of thing. Small intestine, they've all got their little lymph nodes that they're draining to. And there's cells inside of these, and these cells have an immune function. There's a variety of different cells but the ones with immune function are called lymphocytes. Lymphocytes are born in your bone marrow, but they circulate in your bloodstream. You also have them in your lymph nodes. And when these lymphocytes go astray, when they get bad, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about here lymphoma when one of these lymphocytes becomes cancerous. Well, how does that, how does that uh, present itself to me? Am I just, I'm suddenly not able to fight off infection as well? Or how, how do I know that I'm, I need to go see the doctor about this? Yeah. Well, there's a great range in different presentations of people with lymphoma. And we're going to talk about a real life example of a patient I recently took care of to discuss what they presented with. Again, there's lots and lots and lots of different ways that people can present. But the basic idea is that we have these enlarging lymph nodes that contain cancer and as they grow, not only do they become a drain on the body, basically a parasite, but because of their association with the immune system can dysregulate your entire body's immunity, cause fever, night sweats, cachexia, um, and a number of other things like that. So, yeah. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to feel it, right? This, is, this isn't like a cancer that is going to sneak up on me. I'm, I'm going to feel this. Is what you're saying. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have sweats. I'm going to be maybe something swollen. There, there's going to be some physical properties that are going to send me to see. The way I would say it with this cancer or any other cancer, there's general symptoms and then there's specific to the problem. So general symptoms would be fever, sweats, wasting away or weight loss, your just loss of energy, you know, or you're, you're feeling sick. And then specific to lymphoma, let's say you're ability to fight an infection is impaired, then you would go to your, your primary care physician and say, you know, I think I'm sick. And they check you out. And during the course of this, they say, I think you need to see Dr. Slagle. That sounds good. Uh, to, to answer Mike's question, though, it, it can present in various ways. Sometimes people get a CT scan because of an uh, unrelated reason, and they find that these lymph glands are enlarged. Sometimes on examination, um, someone's just checking things, say, hey, I see a little bit of bump on your neck, and they, fall, uh, they can find it from there. So some, uh, sometimes it can become symptomatic, and other times there's n no problems, or the, the patient uh, has nothing to, to be bothered by. So just right. if it's not one of those like I don't know eight that you said like neck groin armpits, I probably won't notice this, right? Uh, for the most part, 
but occasionally you can get pain if there's a large amount. You can get dysfunction of different organs because of, the, of this uh, tumor and, and, and what it does from you. There's really no black and white in terms of you have it, you don't. And I'm going to try to share you know, just one example of what had happened with a patient who had a lymphoma. And this particular lymphoma tends to be on the very aggressive side of things. We certainly have many other uh, examples of people who have a much less aggressive course, much more slow and not causing problems to the point where we really don't want to do anything as a, as a doctor that our treatments would cause more harm than good. And we say, well, we really don't think we want to do anything about it other than just kind of let us run its course. And perhaps at some time, it's going to get big enough, bad enough that we're going to have to do something. And of course, that's that's a tough pill to swallow for someone who wants to be proactive and do everything they can for their health. Well, I know that that happened with my father uh, in the late stages of his life that the doctor basically said, well, we see this thing, but we're going to watch it because we don't want to take any action right now. We'll just wait and, and kind of see. And, and in the end, he died before, you know, of other things before that became an issue, is my understanding. Um, but I did have a question, and that was, Paul, you started out saying that they're about the size of an M&M. How big do they get when, they're, when they become cancerous? They become at least anything bigger than an M&M and go from an M&M to a peanut M&M. And from there, they can get really big. And is this something like uh, kind of the way, Peter, you, you were describing it is if I have a cut on my finger, then the lymph node in my armpit activates. If I have a lymphoma, are all of my hundreds of lymph nodes getting larger or just, you know, like something close by a problem, like just the one in my armpit or something? Generally, they tend to be localized first. And then over time, as they grow and develop and become malignant, they spread and enlarge elsewhere. Uh, that has to do with the stage. And we talked about that a little bit in the, the first chapter of our podcast series when we talked about esophageal cancer, that we have very specific ways of staging and determining the spread. Uh, but they typically start off localized and over time that they spread, uh, break off, metastasize, and grow elsewhere, kind of like a weed that's, uh, f that throws off both uh, roots, if you will, and also little uh, seedlings that, uh, that go elsewhere and grow. Okay, well, those cells. So let's try this. Let's try a, uh, a fictitious patient, and we'll just walk all the way through that uh, and see what that looks like. All right. I had a gentleman I saw some, some years back who had been a Vietnam uh, veteran and had been exposed to the herbicide Agent Orange, which we know is a carcinogen and has been linked with, with several cancers. He, uh, over a course of about two, three months, became increasingly tired, not able to do things around the house, napping, sleeping 10 hours a night and waking up exhausted. Uh, started developing some, some night sweats and didn't want to eat. He also had some back pain, and uh, when his back pain became bad enough, he, he went to the emergency room. 
uh, at the emergency room. They did all the tests, including some laboratories. And when they drew the laboratories, they said, hmm, this guy's very anemic. His red blood cells were very low. And, and, th and that helps explain the fatigue, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. It's one of the reasons. He looked pale and just did not have the red blood cells in his body. Well, he also complained of back pain, and they did some x-rays, and they wound up, like they often do, do a CT scan, and lo and behold, he had some large lymph nodes in deep in his abdominal cavity. If I can remember correctly, they were three to four centimeters, which in English translates to about an inch or two. Um, in the hospital, he was there about three days or so, two nights. They gave him some pain medication. They gave him some transfusions. And they got word back from the radiologist reading the scan that said, hmm, this might be lymphoma, might be a good idea to get a biopsy. So he's in the ER, and all he knows is that, hey, I, I'm wiped out. I'm just exhausted. I'm pale. They do some blood work. They do some imaging and they start to think this might be a blood cancer. Do you think they figured that out right in the ER? I think there was a pretty good idea of that with, with the night sweats and, and there are infections that can cause that. Even COVID can, can do that. Tuberculosis can cause it. Sometimes a infection in the bone, they call it osteomyelitis. All those sort of things can cause the same sort of symptoms so that when people go in the emergency room, they have no idea what you have, really. And so they have to go through these blood tests and images and so forth to figure out. Do you remember in med school, Dr. Templeton used to talk about itis, oma, and emia? Uh, this was our second year of med school, and he used to drill that into us. Um, he was our pathology teacher. And a person would come in with these kinds of vague symptoms, and one of the first things your physician has to do is figure out, is it an itis, such as inflammation of some kind? Uh, is it an oma? It, the word ends in oma. Uh, so like tonsillitis is inflammation of your tonsils. And, you know, carcinoma is, is a cancer. Is it some sort of cancer causing the problem, or is it an emia, such as like a, a problem with your blood? Uh, we had it got more involved after that, but those were the big three. Do you remember that, Pete? I do, I do. That was uh, a long time ago, but it did really teach us a lot about being a physician and to be critical in terms of analyzing the the clinical situation and trying to 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 figure out what it is to do the differential diagnosis to pinpoint what we're dealing with, and then when once we get that pinpointed, we can. Uh, make a diagnosis and do appropriate treatments. So our guy goes from the ER up to the floor and he's on the floor and the med students are poking and prodding him and the residents and the attending physicians and he gets some blood transfusions and then what happens up there? Yeah, uh, for this... Well, is any of that going to help? Just, sorry, uh, like, is getting a blood transfusion going to yeah. you know, alleviate well, absolutely. any of the... Yeah. The, the guy could not even, I, I didn't specify this, but just walking from his bedroom to the kitchen or whatnot, he became short of breath. And his pain was so intense that he hadn't slept for like a week or two other than just a quick cat nap for 20 or 30 minutes. 
Um, he had been given um, some ibuprofen at one point, had a couple of hydrocodones laying around the house, but really didn't do anything. And he was quite miserable, actually. So when he's in the hospital, they give pain medications, IV fluids, uh, give transfusions just to kind of get him back into shape. And those things actually help quite a bit. And I think Mike's point is like, why would giving blood help? And the answer if I'm not mistaken, is because of his lymphoma, his normal blood production capacity has been limited. And so his blood level was low. That's how I would think of it. That was better said than than I did. I believe his hemoglobin was down to about six. And in English, that means that he only had about six pints of blood as opposed to the 13 or 14 that a normal male should have. So if you ever think about going to the blood bank and donating eight units of blood, that's about how he felt at the time. And It sounds like he's borrowing blood cells, though, right? So it's, it's going to help him feel better. But is that potentially masking? Like, wow, God, Doc, thanks for the transfusion. I feel fantastic. And now, you know, if they don't figure out what the actual problem is, he could go home thinking he's good and he's actually potentially lengthening the amount yeah, of absolutely. The actual treatment. Well, we were... yeah. Yeah. So your blood is made in your bone marrow. And so if there's a problem and your blood cells last about 120 days. And so if there's a problem with your bone marrow, the cells you've got start declining every day. You lose one, 120th of your blood. Well, help me. So help if you're having, out, how did I get from, you know, I've got, you guys are talking about lymphoma, but now we're talking about, I'm in the blood marrow. Is, are there, are there lymph nodes in the marrow that are, how is the, how are my lymphs affecting this uh, blood production? That, that's a great question. And that'll segue into why we wound up doing a bone marrow biopsy a little bit later. We talk about the blood as an organ, and most people don't learn about blood is really being part of an organ system until late into medical school. But the the, uh, blood system is a liquid organ. The origin is is considered the bone marrow, and it communicates with the spleen and with the lymph nodes. And in this particular case, this gentleman had the lymphoma infect his bone marrow and caused the bone marrow just to not work very well because it was occupying the area, it was invaded, it was overtaken. And as a result, the bone marrow just went kaputz and it couldn't develop any more red blood cells. Okay, so wait, sorry. This is then when you were talking about earlier where the, the lymph node will have a problem. So it's now um, leaking out or it's starting to spread a little bit. Instead of going to other lymph nodes, uh-huh. it's going to the bone marrow. Correct. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, so what? One of the hallmarks of cancer is it can invade locally, and the other hallmark is it can invade distantly. So, for example, next month we'll be talking about skin cancer, and if there's a problem on my skin, it shouldn't be a big problem, right? I can just cut it out. But if it invades, if it goes distant, you know, into my brain as well, that gets harder. You cut out my brain and before you know it, I'm, uh, you know, 
worse than I already am. So with the lymphoma, the, the cancer begins wherever it begins, but in this particular case, it moved into the bone marrow and it overtook the bone marrow. And then the bone marrow couldn't do its normal job of creating more red blood cells and more white right, blood cells. I want to ask a crazy question. Have I summarized yeah, that good. okay? Um, but just, right, cool. I, and I know I'm getting a little off track here. I promise I'll get right back on. What you're describing though is- Oh no, we're, we're, we're meant to go off track. This is the whole point of What this. you're describing is there's a problem that initiates in the lymph gland and then the, the damaged cells sort of break away, enter under the bloodstream, or they somehow move around the body and they find something else to attach to. In this case, what you're talking about is the marrow, but is it possible that that lymph gland spreads its uh, you know, bad cells and they just get into the blood system and they go and they affect I don't know, the liver? Like, it, 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 does it matter what it goes? Like, I thought it would have gone lymph node to lymph node first. Like, that cell recognizes itself in other places in the body. But you're saying it can just go anywhere and potentially infect anything in any system. In terms of the stages of lymphoma, we go from stage one to stage four. And generally, stage one lymphoma means one or two lymph nodes in a local area. Stage two means that there's several lymph node stations. That's what the medical term is, that they go from the armpit maybe to under the clavicle to close to the windpipe, the trachea. So it's localized. Stage three means that it's gone uh, across the midline of your body, across the diaphragm. That's what the kind of the equator is for the, the lymphoma classification system. And the final stage, stage four, is when it gets into the bone marrow or into organs. So it certainly, like you said, can go into the liver, but more commonly it is attracted to the, the bone marrow. So when uh, someone has lymphoma, that's one from the lymph nodes to the bone marrow, then it's stage four, and it means it's more aggressive. It's a complete body disease rather than a localized, like a stage one or perhaps a stage two. Okay. So my initial kind of concept that a, lymph, a bad lymph cell breaking away from a lymph node will actually find probably another local lymph node and then sort of like a little cluster will happen, and then it'll start to sort of spread outward as you hit stage three and stage four. Yeah, we don't completely understand that, but there is a, an evolution of, of cancer where it starts as maybe not quite as aggressive, but it kind of accelerates in terms of mutations and nastiness, if you will, over time. Okay. All right, but now we're, we're back in the marrow for this patient. That's where they because and that means he's got to be stage three or stage four when he's coming in to see you. Exactly. Yeah. So we're going to go back to the patient case and I'll kind of walk you through this a little bit. So the 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 patient wound up having some large lymph nodes, but in the back of his abdominal cavity. So he wound up getting a what they call a CT guided biopsy. Went down to radiology. They got him lined up in the table. Said, ah, look at this big lymph node three to four centimeters, we can hit that with a needle. So they got them all lined up. They avoided the spinal cord, the vertebrae, the aorta, and put the needle into that. Now it's a really skinny little needle, so they were able to get some cells out of it. Generally, it's very diagnostic. It'll tell you what's going on, and that's really the gold standard in terms of what kind of lymphoma this is. I often tell my 
patients that it's like a subset of a dog? Do we have a, a toy poodle or do we have a Rottweiler, a German Shepherd, whatever the case would be? But by doing the biopsy, you can confirm that it is lymphoma. And then secondly, often what subtype it is. And in this particular case, the patient had the biopsy and upon the biopsy, he was better from a pain point of view. The hospital says, well, we're done doing what we need to do to you in terms of getting pain controlled, getting you transfused. You can leave the hospital and follow up with the oncologist in a week and he'll go over the biopsy results and then tell you what to do. And in, in fact, that was what, what had happened. So I saw him in the office a week later. He went home with a pill bottle full of oxycodone or whatnot and used those to, to get by for the next couple of days. And of course, suffered, but uh, had something that he could at least sleep and, and function with. And you know, Mike, to get back to your earlier question, about the lymph node or the exhaustion. In this case, it sounds like the, the cancer began in a lymph node deep inside, but there's no way to know for the patient that that's happening because it's deep inside. It's not like it's under your jaw where you can feel it. And it wasn't in this case until it had evolved and had gone on and reached the bone marrow and shut down production of blood cells that made him anemic and exhausted, and then he goes to the ER, that's when the, when the patient starts to really experience symptoms and you know where this whole story kind of begins. Okay, you guys are scaring me right now. Because sorry, because, so sorry. You know, I'm always looking. You know, I, I I'm participating here, and I'm thinking, oh, I'll, I'll I'll learn things that I can do that I can talk to my doctor about. And it's like, hey, you know, how's my lymph system? You know, when I go see my uh, general practitioner, are they checking this for me? Is this just one of those battery of tests for my blood or whatever? And I'm just unaware. Like, yes, I got to tell you, if if I can't know about this until it's that far. Uh, that scares me. So how, how is it being checked uh, earlier yeah. for me? Well, I'm going to twist your question and not really address it head on. But the vast, vast, vast majority of people that have back pain have a slipped disc, have some arthritic changes, have a pinched nerve, all that sort of stuff that people live with, go see chiropractors, take ibuprofen, eventually have to do a talk to a neurosurgeon about it. It is only the rare patient who has lymphoma or, or cancer of that matter that presents with back pain. But that is really what differentiates good doctors from bad doctors, that they want to ask you further questions. Say, anything else happening with your back pain? You say, oh, I got night sweats and I lost 20 pounds. There should be some red flags going up in the, in, in the health provider's brain to say, hmm, we better do some scans. We better look harder into this. Whereas, yeah, I just had back pain. Have you ever had it before? Oh, yeah, this happened about six months ago when I was playing softball or whatever. But the, I think the, the key really is to say, are there any other associated problems other than back pain? Okay, that's interesting, you know, because I don't know if, it, if it's just me or there's this sort of stoic kind of quality where I go to the doctor and, like, are there any problems? I'm like, nope. Yeah, you don't want him to find anything I mean, out. I might have back pain. <laughs> And I might have the occasional night sweat, but I'm not putting that together. So basically what you're telling me is 
I have to divulge a lot more. I have to tell my doctor, well, you know what? Yeah, I, I, I don't know that they're connected, um, but I have, you know, I don't know, a, a buildup of earwax. <laughs> well, <laughs> I can't. You, you know, I, you know I, I mean, that sounds silly, but I should really be telling them anything that I notice because they'll put together what I, I'm not. So that's I think right. to keep to keep it from unnecessarily alarming everybody. Most of the time, our various headaches or sniffles or back pains or you know minor weight fluctuations are just that. They're just the ordinary events that happen in the course of day to day life. When you start getting things forming a constellation. That's when your physician can really make a difference and tie together certain things that you may not have realized. Like, let's say I've got this back pain, and it's just persistent. It's completely different than any other back pain I've seen. Then the physician needs to go in there and ask a bunch of questions and figure out, is this just musculoskeletal strain, or is there more to the story? Just like Peter was saying with the weight loss and the, and the night sweats. This... This particular patient had a group of symptoms with back pain, weight loss, night sweats. Then they do a blood test, and they, he looks pale, and the blood test shows he's got anemia. That's when the doc says, aha, you know, there's enough to build a case on here. We better not send this patient home. We better take him inside. All right, well, that brings me back to my earlier question, though, is when I just go in for my regular yeah. checkup, does any of that stuff you know, I don't, I'm unaware of it, but is the doctor checking at least, you know, cursorily, are they doing a quick check uh, on on my, on my limb? Yeah, they're going to, they're going to feel your neck. They're going to reach inside your armpits and it's okay. They're going to be right there in your groin, but it's okay because they're doctors and they're going to feel your belly and and your spleen. And uh, they'll probably, you know, get periodic blood work from time to time. And they're also just going to ask basic questions. Uh, Not to be underestimated is the importance of that. Like, overall, how are you feeling? Is your health getting better? Is it getting worse? You know, if they say, oh, doc, I'm feeling horrible, I'm sluggish, and, you know, start describing all these things, they might start looking harder into certain things. But if you're like, oh, no, I just, you know, I just bike rode 40 miles, and I'm, you know, never feeling better, I'm sleeping well, and eating like a horse, you know, they are going to be less concerned and, and less worried that things are falling apart. Okay. I typically ask quite a bit about functionality. And for this particular patient, Ed, he hadn't done any of his work activities to mowing the lawn and doing some shop projects for three weeks. And so his wife kind of let on, hey, you know, this, there's been some, some big changes going on. So I, I really think that it's important that you kind of get a full picture. And if you're rolling around, you're going to work, you're driving, everything's fine, you're sleeping through the night like you normally do, there's probably not a, a concern about cancer. However, if you start losing function, you start having pains that you've never had before, the character is different, uh, you get night sweats, you see some blood somewhere. Those are the things that, that should bring alarm or concern to present to your doctor. But everyone gets some fatigue. Everyone gets some back pain. Everyone gets some belly pain. Everyone gets some headaches. Everyone gets some some stress. But the, the, the issue really is, are there new different things? Are they progressive? Are they associated with changes really in your life? All right. I mean, I, 
I'm not the person to speak about this, but uh, I, I know someone who suffers from night sweats. And it's a, a friend. Woman, she's about 50 years old. <laughs> so, <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> that's, you know, that's menopause as far as she knows. But based on what you're saying is, all right, so she's exhausted because she's not sleeping through the night. And she's, she's suffering from heat, hot flashes and, and sweats and everything. But if her quality of life otherwise, if she's able to do the things that she's doing, then chances are it's menopause. And she's not, like, it isn't this constellation, as you called it earlier, Paul. Uh, so, I mean, I guess that's the trick for you, you doctors. You, you sort, I mean, you have to make sure that you're not diminishing somebody. Like, if, if this woman showed up and said, oh, you know, I have all these things. I'm like, oh, you got menopause. Maybe she could have lymphoma under that, though, too, right? I love this uh, this question. I actually did four years of primary care before I went into surgery. And this is a really, I think, essential aspect of primary care is figuring out, you know, that one out of 100 or whatever where it's just routine normal business. This is routine menopause. Or is there something more important going on? And I think that's not something that we can answer within the context of a radio show. But I do think that that comes to the heart of the problem of uh, your initial diagnosis. You know, um, is it goes to this... what Peter was saying. Then add on how's your how's your life your you know life quality how you know not just the the symptoms so much, but are, is there more? Have you, have you seen a change or a big turn in your life in addition to those things? Right? And it's also, yeah. And it's also where getting to practice medicine in a modern Western facility makes you look really good because you may not be sure. Or is this something? The things that can come to your rescue as a clinician are the laboratory tests and the imaging that we have available to us now. So let's just say I meet a patient, I'm a primary care physician or a PA or nurse practitioner, and I'm not sure if this person is just going through the ordinary stuff or if there's something extraordinary going on. I can order some lab tests and some imaging. And, and then these things go up stepwise more and more and more. So the first set of, of tests and whatnot, you say, aha, this person has a problem with their lymphocytes or their blood. Then they go upstairs to the hospital where they explore them some more. They do more tests. They even do a bone marrow biopsy. And then they look at it under the microscope and they say, aha, this is a lymphoma. It's a subtype of lymphoma called non-Hodgkin's. There's Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's, and I don't really know the difference, to be honest. Um, we'll leave that to Pete. But it's a subset of lymphoma called non-Hodgkin's, of which there are many subtypes as well. And by looking at the microscope and doing some fancy biologic studies, we can tell you which subtype it happens to be. How'd you I did do, excellent. Pete? I am going to leap into... <laughs> You're not just saying no, that. I, I would love to talk that. about Are the you? difference between Hodgkins and non-Hodgkins, but the the point of this show is not to have a medical school lecture, which I would ha be happy to give. Well, now I'm curious. Can you give me like a one, you know, thirty second 
one is this, one's that. Yeah, Hodgkin's disease tends to occur in much younger demographic, people in their teens, 20s, 30s. It tends to present much more with what we call B symptoms, which means these fever, night sweats, weight loss sort of symptoms, much more what we consider inflammatory, that the, the body is responding to some sort of evil chemicals in the body that are associated with the immune system. Uh, whereas non-Hodgkin's tends to just become more and more common as you become older. Of course, there's a lot of overlap between the two. It does turn out that Hodgkin's disease was one of the first cancers that was actually successfully treated, even in stage four with chemotherapy. So from a, from a historical point of view, it's something that, that, that medical oncologists love to talk about in terms of our success. Um, you know, having said that, there there is a lot of overlap between the different lymphomas, and we can get you all confused in terms of the no- nomenclature. And is it B cell? Is it a T cell? Is it aggressive? Is it is it non-aggressive or indolent? Uh, but it, suffice to say that uh, lymphoma uh, is just a is a very interesting disease from a doctor's point of view and it can be just very odd in terms of how it presents and shows itself and um, how it 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 comes to to uh, the the physician and to the patient's um, perspective and and... all right take me back to your to the to the, the bone marrow of your patient all right we're going to talk about the pathologist the pathologist read the biopsy and unfortunately, we didn't find anything. It was just a bunch of scar tissue. They said, we need more tissue. We need to have a bigger chunk to be able to evaluate. So I saw the patient in the clinic and talked about what was going on. And I said, you know, I'm concerned about lymphoma. And because of the anemia, I think there might be something in your bone marrow. We talked about different things in terms of an open biopsy, which would require a general surgery, a surgeon or a oncologic uh, surgeon to go in there, but that was a big deal. So he agreed to do a bone marrow biopsy. So we gave him a little propofol and got into it. Which is an anesthetic. Yeah. Yeah. So we basically did a conscious sedation, rolled him on his belly, and we did the biopsy on the back of his pelvic bone. And it sounds kind of nasty to do a bone marrow biopsy, which it is, but with uh, sedation, it worked out well. You typically suck out a about a teaspoon of marrow from your pelvic bone um, after using a large needle to get through the, the, the surface of the bone, the cortex as we call it. And then you take a sliver about a quarter of an inch, half an inch long, and then send that to pathology. And pathology does some magic looking at, at that with all sorts of technologies. But the long and the short is the patient had uh, diffuse large B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a very common and aggressive form of lymphoma. It is more of a German shepherd to a Rottweiler in terms of aggressiveness on the, the scale of, uh, of if it was a dog. It was considered a... No, not a Labradoodle, not a Beagle, not a Chihuahua. This is something that can hurt you. Not quite like a Doberman, which you see occasionally, but it's something that that should be uh, of concern. Um, the patient asked me, well, why didn't we find this on the, the biopsy of the, the lymph node in the back of the abdominal cavity? My reply was, I believe it was a burnt or scorched earth kind of picture. When you have very aggressive 
cancers, they tend to burn out so that nothing survives. They're so chaotic, they grow a little bit and then they die and there's just really nothing left. So when they did a skinny little needle biopsy, all they came up with scar. But when you do a bone marrow biopsy, you get a teaspoon of marrow that was enough to give the pathologist enough information. Now, when you say scorched earth, does that mean that that lymph node is like it, that that whole thing was consumed by cancer and it's just like kind of a lump of, like, is that one gone? Like, did did he lose a a lymph node in the middle of his body? It it is fairly interesting. A a lot of these aggressive cancers are associated with cell death called necrosis. And the necrosis is basically scar tissue, meaning there's nothing living there. So that these cancer cells that are very aggressive tend to be very unstable, chaotic, and they don't survive very well, believe it or not. Now, they they grow in such a rapid fa- fashion, it's almost like uh, fire. But uh, on the other hand, they, they tend to burn out pretty quickly. Well, I was starting to get a question, which was, you know, because you had said, hey, I'm, I'm suspecting lymphoma, so let's go, let's go check your, because of the anemia, let's go check and, and do a, a bone marrow biopsy. So I thought, okay, does that mean that there's two things now? There's the, the, the lymph node is having a problem, and now the bone is having a problem, and do you doctors have to now deal with these two things? Or, as basically what you're sort of saying is, that lymph node sort of destroyed itself, and you now only are dealing with the um, bone marrow cancer. Yeah. I think the first point I would make is that it's all connected, that the cancer is involving the 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 blood system. So whether it's the bone marrow or the lymph nodes, it's contaminating all of it. And the seeds are kind of spreading uh, throughout the, the whole body, particularly in those, in that system. But how do you target two sort of cancers that are happening? I mean, it, it sounds like it started with one and ah, split into two. This, this is a very good question. So what happens is the cancer begins somewhere and then let's say it moves to the regional lymph nodes. And then from the regional lymph nodes, it moves even farther. With every move, there can be more and more genetic changes. And the cancers can get more and more different. And this is where oncology can become so difficult. Because even if you find treatments that cure 99% of the tumor cells that, that zap or somehow dismantle, somehow dismantle 99% of the tumor cells that are in your body, there's still that 1% that is is still raging. And you've got to come up with something to figure some kind of solution to, to address that last 1% or else it just carries the process forward. To uh, address the question of, of the cancer, we've identified it's stage four. It's involving the bone marrow by evidence of the bone marrow biopsy, as well as the lymph nodes that, that are enlarged. And because it's stage four, it involves the whole system. So we generally would think that we need a treatment that involves the whole body. Now, there are other treatments of, of lymphoma in terms of radiation or surgery, but we would rely on medicines because it, we believe that it's everywhere. It's in the bone marrow, it's in lymph nodes. There's no way that we can localize the treatments. Even if we have fancy schmancy radiation, we say we can get this part of the bone marrow, this lymph node or whatever. So we do wind up using chemo and that's exactly what the, the patient went through. Okay. So that's going to, that's going to address 
any different types of cancers all throughout the body that may have like because it might not it, it's moved to the bone marrow but it might have also moved someplace else as well so you're attacking that cancer started as lymphoma everywhere yeah the chemotherapy is a whole body treatment it's basically a poison that we know that the cancer is growing very very quickly very aggressive and by infusing a patient with a poison, we know that the cancer will be a hundred times more metabolically active and therefore eat, say, a hundred times more of the chemotherapy than the rest of the body. It's kind of like saying, well, if you drink a beer, no big deal, but if you drink a hundred beers, you're going to die. And that's kind of what happens The lymphoma. Because it's so aggressive, it's so metabolically active, it's so proliferative that it just grabs up, gobbles all this poison, and in doing so, it's, it destroys itself. Okay. That sort of makes sense. And so that was what we did. And based upon clinical uh, studies, we used something called R-CHOP. Um, and it involves three different chemotherapies. It includes prednisone and rituxan. And they all kind of work a little bit differently. But the long and short is you try to poison the, the crap out of the, the cancer. And in, 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 in doing so, it shrinks and in many cases kills the cancer. So I think of chemo kind of like crop dusters, you know, uh, buzzing over the crops, just spewing out all of that poison. And the healthy, the healthier plants can survive and the weeds can't. Or the, or you know? the insects and pests, and pests that, like a pesticide coming over. I know that's, I guess, a bad analogy because I'm really worried about the butterfly issue right now. But uh, uh, there you All have right, it. Now, it's it's infinitely complex. If I was to tell you, well, what do we exactly do with the chemo? Well, it's a long infusion. The the patient comes in, and we give the a drug called rituxan, which is what we call a targeted therapy. It's oriented just to the outside of the lymphoma cell. And we infuse that over a couple hours. When that's done, then we use a combination of, of three different chemotherapies that are basically the toxins and trying to poison the cancer. The reason why we use three is because two is better than one and three was better than two. And, and after you get to a certain point, then you're going to cause more harm than good. Uh, but the Now, Paul's a, Paul's a surgeon. And I think we talked about this last time that you would start with Paul, right? You, you would start with a surgeon. Is there a way to find this early enough to cut out a bad lymph node? Or do we pretty much, the way it works, you're, you're almost automatically going into chemotherapy. Yeah. Well, my role, my role would be mostly in helping diagnose. So the person comes into the ER, they're run down, they're worn out, they're not feeling very well. And oh, by the way, they've got this lymph node. And if for some reason by sticking a needle into it, that doesn't work, you can have your friendly surgeon go in and remove a lymph node. And, but not to cure. and then you can look at that. No, that's really just to diagnose it. You know, right. it, it used to be you, you had to remove a lymph node to diagnose it. Now things have gotten a bit better, and you can do a lot of the, a lot of this with just uh, needle biopsies. But still, sometimes you need the whole lymph node in order for the the physician in the laboratory, the pathologist, to be able to look at the architecture of the lymph node and and look at throughout the whole thing 
and you send it down fresh to the pathologist and they do whatever they do, and then they come back with the diagnosis. Okay. But, so you know, that's yeah, where I would week, get involved. Last week we were, but I don't um, cure it. Yeah. So we were talking about that before that, you know, there's, there's times where if you get your surgeon involved early, he can cut the, the offending tissues out and that might be it. And then it moves on and it gets into Peter's world. And then our, the third option was Courtney, who's not with us tonight, but uh, in radiation, uh, is this radiation treatable or is this all pretty much Peter? This is all really in your world. Most of the cases wind up in the medical oncology chemotherapy world uh, regarding radiation. If, if there's just a cluster of lymph nodes in the neck or the armpit, then the, the patient may be amenable just to some local radiation therapy to destroy the lymphoma, including the fingers and the little uh, metastases that may have went to some lymph nodes close by. But So it's the stage? Yeah, that, that, that's why it's so okay. important that we determine this, this spread, the stage, and then we can uh, pinpoint the best treatment, which for most people is more the whole body or, or chemotherapy as well. When you use surgery or when you use radiation for anything, it's it's got to be something that is local because you can't remove a lot with surgery. You can remove an organ or a part of an organ, but you can't go and just cut out every cancer cell a person might have. So as long as the cancer, whatever type of cancer it is, and it, with the blood cancers, it doesn't work at all because it's blood. Uh, there's either solid or, organ tumors or, or blood type tumors. Those are the two big categories. But for radiation, if it's in a region, the radiation can be helpful. But if it's something that could potentially be in your whole body, you can't radiate a person's whole body. It's, it's too much radiation. So okay. the surgeon can, like if there's an item that needs to go, and the surgeon can go in and remove it, whether it's in your brain, whether it's in your nose or in your chest or in your belly or wherever, the surgeon can go and get that thing out. If it's going to benefit from radiation, it has to be in a discrete location that you can zap with radiation. You're not going to give whole body radiation in general. Um, if Courtney was here, I'm sure. And then if it's something like a lymphoma where it could be anywhere in your bone marrow, anywhere in any of your bones, or it could be in your lymph nodes that have crossed the midline, you know, they're not just early stage, it's later stage and they've moved from stage one, two to three to four. Uh, you definitely need chemo because that's the only way you're going to reach all the different cells wherever the heck they may be. All right. There's one other thing that even in my layman world I've heard of, which is a bone marrow transplant. Is that something that is used to treat lymphoma? And Absolutely. So, that, 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 before, yeah. So in terms of treatments of lymphoma from a systemic or whole body or or medicine point of view that we started off in probably the 50s and 60s with chemotherapy, the good old what we call cytoxic, and the origin begins with nitrogen mustard and kind of goes from there. But we've, we've been much more successful and less of a nuclear bomb attack. Uh, but, we, we, but we still use the good old-fashioned chemotherapy. You lose your hair, nausea, vomiting, weak immune system. 
So things have evolved from, we call it cytoxic or cell toxic, where it's just basically poisoning, to targeted therapy. And there's a, a drug called rituxan that is just a, we call an antibody that's oriented toward the top of the lymphoma cell. And there's much less collateral damage. It's kind of like a silver bullet. Uh, bone marrow transplants um, have been replaced by what we call stem cell transplants. But in a way, it's just a gimmick to give more chemotherapy and protect the, the stem cells. And we basically store the stem cells in a, in a freezer, and, and this would be a discussion in of itself. But the idea is that with the stem cell transplants, you can just give higher doses. Now, having said that, there's something called allogeneic bone marrow transplants or stem cell transplants where you take bone marrow from somebody else and use their uh, their immunity to help fight the, the, the cancer and in, indeed just totally replace the whole blood system, the bone marrows in its entirety and give, its, uh, give you someone else's. And we typically use that more in a leukemia and a bone marrow um, cancer's uh, view. Um, so if the, if the lymphomas invaded the bone marrow, what I think you're describing is how do I get it out of the bone marrow, right? And so I think what Pete's describing is you give them so much chemo that you wiped out the bone marrow. And in that circumstance, person's going to die if you don't rescue the situation in one of two ways. One way is you give them back some of their stem cells. Stem cells are kind of like the queen bee of a beehive. And, uh, and so what the, what the medical scientists do is they harvest a few of your stem cells, not the cancer cells, which is tricky. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they do it. But so it's they, like a primary they, cell, right? It's like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's and then the they give those back. The cells are built. Yeah. Right. And so they, they zap your bone marrow with chemo, and then they give you some stem cells back, and then hopefully those can repopulate your body before you pass away. The other option is through, you know, big data and modern life, you get somebody else's bone marrow and and you put you they put that into your bloodstream and that populates your bone marrow and it starts you back up again. How's that, okay. Pete? But, that, but you've already killed all the cancer with chemo. Like Ideally, cancer. theoretically, yes. Okay. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, Paul, I liked your explanation. It's better than I could have given. Um, what, oh, I'd like stop. <laughs> what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about this patient who's now been diagnosed with stage 4B, and we call it B instead of A because he's symptomatic. And we say, yeah, you got lymphoma, diffuse large B cell. We have really good treatments, and 80 90% of the time we can shrink this. And among those people that have shrinkage, as many as half will have durable or long-term cures. And it's, it's a very f uh, amazing thing to see 80 to 90% of the people have big-time shrinkage of their cancer, and of those people, half go on to be cured. So who wouldn't want that? So this particular patient got the infamous RCHOP therapy um, it was administered in the IV chemo suite over a period of about six hours or so. And so the, the patient uh, started with the uh, chemotherapy in the outpatient 
chemotherapy suite and over about eight hours had the rituxan and the, the chop uh, given left at the end of the day felt quite a bit better because of the the prednisone then he had to take about a couple more days of the the prednisone and lo and behold he felt as good as he has in like six months he was able to sleep didn't need his pain medications his night sweats went like away just one and even his backpack yes really i thought they left i mean yep everything just shrunk uh, maybe i'm just remembering like old Dr. Welby, MD, things, and you know, this is this is my level of knowledge. But it, it's yeah, there is a whole range of different uh, chemotherapy responses. But in lymphoma, we tend to see that it's extremely aggressive, grows very quickly. But then when we can kill the cancer, it kills, it dies very quickly as well. It's very dramatic and very fulfilling to. Uh, the patient obviously didn't know. Hey, you know we're we're making big headway, and, uh, and of course talking to the patient a week later, it's just like, wow, you know, I'm glad you're you're feeling so good. So is that and, due to what uh, you were talking about before, where there used to be a the nuclear bomb version of chemotherapy, and now it's more targeted to those cells, so that you're able to actually kill the cancer with just one. Uh, I'm, I'm going to assume there's some people have to have yeah. a few more, but yeah. there's not that long mm-hmm. series of months of treatment. Right. Well, we can destroy with every cycle of chemotherapy, I don't know, 90, 95% of the cancer. But the problem is that there's millions and trillions of, of cells. So even if you knock down 99% of them, you go from a, a trillion to a billion, there's still a lot of cells there. But anyway, that, that makes a big difference because those little fingers aren't pushing on the bones. That there's a dramatic decrease in all these evil chemicals that the lymphoma is dumping into the system. Now, having said that, you do have the toxicity from the chemotherapy, but it's the lesser of two evils. You want the evils of the chemotherapy or the evil of the lymphoma. And when people are affected with advanced lymphoma, causing all of these things, they're like, wow, this is really dramatic. So he, he actually had a very dramatic response to the, the first treatment and felt like he did six months ago, a year ago with this treatment. Wow, that's amazing. Now, does he have to go yeah. back periodically then, I assume, like every six months to, to be retested and see if he... Yeah. Because you need to see if those billion cells, like he got them all, or if there's, there was 10 cells and they've grown now to be a million cells again. Yeah, correct. So we, we the typical protocol is you get the chemotherapy about every three weeks, every 21 days for six cycles. And of course, there are variants of that, but that's usually considered a full course treatment so 18 weeks about four or five months something like that and in most cases uh, people get response there's great shrinkage and a lot of those people are cured and so after his chemo he looked good we saw him a week later to check things out see his blood counts see how he did with chemo how was the nausea all that and we could spend hours talking about you know, just the, the side effects of, of chemotherapy. But suffice to say that he was is feeling much better after just one cycle of, of, of chemotherapy. Okay, so I, I thought that you were saying that you could just have one session. That's not the case. You just feel a lot better yeah. after one session that, because it's become that much more effective. Yeah. Well, you still have to go through months of it. Yeah, we essentially knock down the 90%, 95%. So if we would do a CT scan at that point, instead of seeing that four centimeter lymph node or 
two inch lymph node, you'd see that it shrunk to several millimeters or a half a half a centimeter, five millimeters, something like that. There'd be a significant decrease, and, and that has to do with just how aggressive these lymphomas are and how sensitive they are to chemotherapy. Okay. Um, what then? That sounds like th- this is a cancer that's kind of well healed. H e e l, not healed mm-hmm. like you guys do. Um, meaning that, ah. well, well, I'll flip it back the other way. It, you have, in a way, it's a, it's a solid treatment. So last time, again, we were talking about uh, uh, new therapies. And we were talking about um, getting into a study. Is that something that even exists for this now? Or is it pretty much you know how to treat Well, I think that's a nice segue into uh, the, the CAR-T therapy question. But uh, go ahead, Pete. Yeah, so, so the bad news uh, on this particular patient is after we had given him the, the chemotherapy and he had response, I got a report back from the pathologist. And these days we have what we call hematopathologists. So these are pathologists who just study the blood system. So they look at lymph nodes, bone marrow, blood, spleen. That's kind of their expertise. It's, it's, and they have their own... Uh, science, if you will, and it's, it used to be a quite a subjective field where people just look at these things under a microscope and say, hey, I think it looks like this. They describe it as small or large, diffuse, follicular, blah, blah, blah. But it wasn't very objective and it wasn't very reproducible and it didn't predict very well. But now there's very objective scientific studies that can get to the DNA to, that really drives the cancer. And so the pathologist, hemato or blood uh, pathologist, reported that it was a double hit uh, mutation, which denotes that it's a high risk. It's when we say that 90% of the people have excellent response, it means that 10% don't. And unfortunately, he was the double hit positive patient. And sure enough, after about two weeks, his symptoms uh, in terms of the, the back pain, the night sweats, uh, the, the poor energy returned back to him. And uh, his, his laboratories um, um, did not improve at that point. And we did a CT scan and nothing really had changed. Now, it had shrunk previously for a week or two, but then it came back. And we were in a, in a bad situation uh, calling this primary refractory disease, which is something you never want to hear. And just two weeks ago, I said, you know, 90% of the people sh- have good shrinkage of those. Half of them are cured, but he was on the other half of this. And, of course, the Well, the other 10%. You guys are good at medicine now. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so so the bad news is he was not responding to his therapy, that it it was somewhat immune. It just didn't work. Um, so he wound up uh, being admitted to the hospital again for pain medications. He had to be given intravenous morphine and so forth. Um, it turns out that steroids works very well as a temporizing measure to shrink things. You know, prednisone is used for people who have a flare of rheumatoid arthritis or a bad s- skin rash or something like that. But it, it does work, so we wound up giving them some steroids and tried to figure out what's going on and say, yeah, it's primary refractory lymphoma, and gave him high doses of, of chemotherapy 
They're a little bit different than the, the chop that I had given them before and quite a bit more toxic um, in terms of the nuclear assault where we're just adding a, a bigger arsenal. And uh, indeed, he did have res- results and and did feel better after the chemo. And it was a bit more durable, but, and, uh, but due to the fact that this was a primary refractory disease, we wouldn't suspect that we're going to be able to keep this under control for very long. Is there anything, I guess going back to that, is, is there a study, is there some cutting edge thing that he can look at or try and become a part yeah, of? Yeah, so, so back um, five years ago, if you would have uh, talked about this patient, we would be talking about high-dose chemotherapy and bone marrow transplant, or it's evolved to stem cell transplant. And in, in that particular case, it's just a way to give people uh, higher doses of chemotherapy. The transplanting someone else's marrow hasn't uh, been found to be very effective in these lymphoma cases. But to, to answer your question, the newer tre- treatments are immunotherapy. It's to use your immune system to fight the cancer. Sort of to use your immune system to fight your immune system. <laughs> Exactly. This is a cancer of the immune cell. This is, okay, this is T-cell Exactly. And the only reason I know that, because as you put in the introduction that I'm a graphic designer, (laughs) I actually designed the cover of a medical journal from the University of Chicago where I had to make a superhero T-cell. Wow. (laughs) Did you put your face on it? No, it was just a cartoon face. Thank you. But, uh, so... But I did, you know, from just doing that, I did learn a little bit about that, which is kind of what you're talking about. That, and that was cutting edge, just probably five years ago. Um, it, yeah, explain it yeah. for me well, again. There's two like, forms you know, of a, immunotherapy that have become very vogue and very effective, and just very exciting from a cancer doctor and a cancer patient point of view. The first one is much more common. It's called the checkpoint inhibitor, Keytruda, Opdivo are kind of the two leading drugs in that drug category. We use that for lung cancer, for malignant melanoma, for head and neck cancers, and even some subsets of colorectal cancer. Much more commonly used. The type of treatment I'm going to be talking about is something called CAR-T. And what CAR-T is, is basically bioengineering the immune system to fight the cancer and it utilizes well let me back up and talk about what car t is because i as a physician hate when people use um, initials uh, and and don't explain what the car t means so it means chimeric antigen receptor t cell Oh, totally. Yeah, right. now I understand. <laughs> now I got it. <laughs> anyway, uh, so Chimera... Let's stick with CAR-T. Yeah, yeah. CAR-T, all right. Um, so what we do with the CAR-T is that we harvest these T-cell lymphocytes through a machine, generally in, in the blood bank or an infusion center, that takes these T-cells out. Then we take these T-cells uh, into a laboratory and add... A DNA to encode the T cells to fight are, them. Sorry, just briefly. When you're saying T cells, 
my understanding of that is they're a form of a white blood cell, the kind that actually fight infection. And, yeah. So, right. so the, okay. So that's that's what yeah, the T Mike, cell. Mike, so okay. so the way I try to describe these different T and B cells and whatnot to patients is kind of like different Curse versions them. of police. So you might have a policeman who's walking on the beat. You might have a policeman on a bicycle or a motorcycle, a policeman in a squad car or a paddy wagon. And I can say that because I'm Irish. Uh, you know, the big box that holds a bunch of people in at the same time. And so, you know, you have different versions of white blood cells of these, these uh, sort of policemen of your blood. And so the T cells are one kind and the B cells are another kind. And, you know, antibodies that are circulating are a third sort of uh, device that your body creates in order to neutralize, you know, invaders. And that is my sort of thumbnail sketch of, of what these terms kind of represent. Was a T cell a heavy hitter then? Yes. Actually, the other okay. thing, some, some of these T cells are kind of like, uh, if you want to use a different analogy, like on a football team, like I think of the helper T cell as the quarterback of the team, you know? Um, so, uh, Pete is, is the helper T a quarterback or, you know, more like a, uh, most definitely, the whole HIV crisis was brought about by a deficiency in the CD, uh, the T cells. Yeah, yeah. Without the T cells, we would die of overwhelming infection in a very short period of time. So you were saying that they, they take the T cells out. So they sort of organize and direct. Okay, but you, so they they want those directors, and they and Pete, you were saying that they cull them. They they take those T cells out. Yeah. And then so, what happens? Yeah, so we remove the, the T cells in the laboratory. They transfect um, and they put a, a foreign like DNA that they transfect. They're able to put foreign DNA into the T cells to program them to do what they want. That's called transfecting. So the transfection involves taking foreign DNA, inserting that into somebody's T cells and then insert, and then we'll take those T cells that have been expanded. They multiply them in a petri dish in a lab, and basically take these T cells and infuse them back into the body. And interestingly enough, they go right to the surface of the lymphoma and fight those lymphoma cells in a very specific way. Uh, some and, people. And this call is that, your own uh, body, right? So the, the 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 risk is lower, and the chance of it rejecting. Your body rejecting the, this new uh, element is less because it's just sort of been encoded into the DNA of something that is already part of you. Yeah, well, it, it's very bioengineered to be uh, fighting the the bad part of your body, which is the lymphoma. And there's a specific uh, part of the lymphoma that kind of identifies it to make it. Uh, they call it the CD19, but that's the the target. Uh, for the for the vast majority of these tar CAR T treatments for lymphoma, and I believe there's three of these CAR T therapies on the market right now. So, Mike, it's if, a big deal. Yeah, if this was a sci-fi movie, and your family was on a ranch, right, and you're being attacked by zombies, and there's okay. thousands of zombies, and there's only you know ten of you guys, and you don't know how you know the audience is nervous, you're all going to get wiped out by the zombies. So then here's where the sci-fi part comes in. And this is actual, like, uh, I don't know how people figured out how to do this. But then they sort of 
take some of your family out of the ranch magically, let's say, mm-hmm. and then then they give them ninja powers and then they multiply them over. So now that you've got 10,000 of your own family members inside the ranch, they put them back and then you fight the zombies and you win. Gotcha. But it, it expands. Army. This is Star Wars stuff. It's a, yeah, it's clone Fighting stuff. Clone it's, this is it. yeah, it's probably where they got the idea actually. Now that sounds very fancy. What are the odds of me if I need it getting that therapy? Is this so cutting edge new that it's I, I'm not likely to see that, or is it now I can get it if I need it? Kind of both. It, it is difficult to get. You have to go to a academic medical center that specializes in complex immunotherapy often the stem cell or bone marrow transplant centers carry this Uh, i practice in a smaller city Uh, we generally have to go to a larger city Um, university of washington in seattle would be the, the the place that we would refer our people to that that need this treatment and from what i'm aware there's just a handful of people with this expertise because it's a very tricky and complex therapy involving laboratories and and uh, the ICU even and the patient and the doctor and all this coordination going on. If if I'm not mistaken, it was all developed at the NIH, and uh, I think it was to the tune of over a billion dollars figuring this one out. But they the did NIH. it. NIH, National Institutes of Health in Washington, D.C. Yeah. 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 So we were talking about CAR-T before, and what's the definition? What exactly does CAR-T stand for? And it's chimeric antigen receptor T cell, blah, blah, blah. But chimera is a combination hybrid therapy that has a is a female fire-breathing creature with a lion's head, a goat's body, and a serpent's tail. And uh, the English translation means an impossible creation. The way I look at it is we've taken our own T cells and then we've inserted the ability to fight lymphoma with, with foreign DNA. That's pretty so we amazing. we have the best of both yeah. worlds. We have our own T cells that can fight. They're not so smart. So it normally, it normally doesn't. In your body. No. So, so no. They're, they're basically hijacking the uh, immune system adding this super ninja power that you're talking about because it normally it, it would just it's just floating around all this lymphoma basically ignoring it and so you once it happens yeah and, and you basically say no 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 no, you can't ignore it you're now chimeric we've we've turned you into <laughs> a new beast and you have lymphoma fighting ninja powers that's interesting yeah Impossible and i think that's a creation. i think that's a good point to wrap this up because uh once we've got uh you know, soaring ninja powers. I don't know how we can top that. Right. <laughs> yeah. So every treatment has its pros and cons, and this can be really tough on people. They uh, they can be in the ICU. They can have fevers, 103, 104. They can have all sorts of short-term problems. But the long and the short is this about a 50% effective with these people with primary refractory or relapsed lymphoma, which is a very... Um, scary scary population to take care of with they've all heard that hey you might do really well but they turn out to be on the short end of this right, so that's the 10 yeah they only get referred there because they were the ones who failed the first line so 50 percent of the 10 percent can get the effective treatment through this so basically you're at now a 95 percent effective treatment 
rather than a 90% effective treatment, basically. Well, the medical system does some pretty incredible stuff with, with people with lymphoma, but yeah, it's hard to, to really look at the statistics all that, uh, that critically. But you know, when you're a patient, you want the CAR-T because not only can it knock the lymphoma out, it can provide people a long-term cure. And so uh, who, who wouldn't want that? Um, and using your own immunity to do that? Crazy question. Sign me up. So that, Sorry. Crazy question for the future. Will it come to the point where we can bypass the chemotherapy and go right to the T-cell therapy? Uh, at this point, the CAR-T has been found to be effective in what we call hematological malignancies. There's some leukemias and other forms of lymphoma, but it hasn't been found to be effective in the vast majority of common cancers, the colon, the pancreas, the lung, the breast, the ones that you hear about a lot. But even for lymphoma, so, can I look to a future where I, I can avoid chemotherapy and they can just give me the super ninja cells? <laughs> Perhaps. We've made a tremendous amount of progress in the last five years with lymphoma, but uh, you know, at this point... Yeah, we don't know. It, it can be pretty toxic. I mean, who, who everyone wants to avoid the cytoxic chemotherapy, the nuclear attack. But um, having said that, this uh, it does therapy yeah. can cause some problems too. So, you know, we'll just have to figure it out. But as it stands, the the price tag on these CAR Ts are well over a, a million dollars, and so. You know, that's going to be an, another uh, issue that we'll have to contend with. But And also the chemotherapy else. is tried and true over many decades, and it works many, many times. And a lot cheaper. All right, so with that, I think we'll wrap this up. And I'm going to thank all our listeners once again uh, for tuning in. And if you have a topic you would like to have us discuss or comments or feedback, please either log on to www.paulbryanroach.com. That's Paul, B-R-Y-A-N-R-O-A-C-H dot com and click on the contact page or send them directly to letters at paulbryanroach.com and next month we'll be talking skin cancer.